Brain for Business podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and do ensure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and now as well, Substack. Scandals regularly sweep through organizational fields. They wreak havoc in markets, vaporize billions of dollars in firm value, bring down giant corporations, get CEOs fired, alter the evolution of technologies, and trigger major changes in society. In spite of their significance for organizational life, scandals have received remarkably little attention in management research. So says our guest today on the Brain for Business podcast, Professor Julien Jourdan, who attempts to address this gap in the literature by building on the social sciences' sparse but growing stream of research on scandals to provide new insights and understandings. Julien Jourdan is an Associate Professor of Management and Human Resources at HEC Paris. Julien's research focuses on reputation, legitimacy, and other social evaluations of organizations. In so doing, he examines how stakeholders evaluate organizations in institutionally complex environments and how these evaluations shape organizational conduct, governance, strategy, and performance. Julien, welcome to Brain for Business. Thank you, Laurie. Great to speak to you and um, happy to be there. Well, we are, are delighted to have you with us. And building upon the introduction there, could you perhaps start by telling us what, what actually is a, a scandal? How do you define it? How do you understand it? Well, uh, at the most basic level, a, a scandal is a public event. Uh, you know, it has a beginning, it has an end. It usually begins with the, somehow the revelation of misconduct. Uh, and then you have accusations. So you have a social actor, an individual or an, an organization that is suspected of wrongdoing and gets publicly accused. And then you have a series of steps involving you know, denials, investigations, further accusations, trials, uh, and it, it can go on for a long time, weeks, sometimes months, and each step is associated with press and media coverage. And after a while, uh, the interest of the public kind of fades, is displaced by other newsworthy topics, and, and the scandal withers away. So it has a beginning and an end, and a lot of publicity in between those, those two points. And, and this is well captured by yeah, one of the um, most accepted definitions, uh, which is the one given by uh, sociologist Harry Adott, an event of varying duration that starts with the publicization of real, apparent, or alleged transgression to a negatively oriented audience and lasts as long as there is significant and sustained public interest in it. So I, I study organizational scandals, that is, scandals that involve organizations as main actors, maybe the, the most well-known form is, is what we call corporate scandals. But actually, when we when we look closely at these uh, these these affairs, they most of the time involve some form of organization. Um, you know, if you take the the case of Harvey Weinstein, maybe one of the most remarkable um, uh, scandals of, of the last uh, ten years, and the one that gave rise to the Me Too movement. Well, uh, Weinstein, you know, Hollywood producer, uh, was accused of sexual uh, misbehavior in his role as head of the Weinstein company. 
the company he had uh, co-founded with his brother. And there was this you know, kind of evidence that many at the company knew, turned a blind eye on, on what was happening. Uh, and actually, the company did not survive the scandal. So even though it might appear as a, an individual scandal, a scandal centered on an individual, it actually has a lot of organizational ramifications. You mentioned there, when you're quoting the definitions, that a, a scandal might be based on something, an, an event that is real, apparent, or or alleged. Yeah. And, and I'm curious just on those three subtle distinctions, because obviously when it comes to something like Harvey Weinstein, initially there were allegations and then it emerged and has mm-hmm. been confirmed through legal trials that it was they were real. But do scandals also sometimes emerge, even though things are just simply alleged, but we never actually really know if something, the, the wrongdoing, the misconduct actually yeah. happened? Yeah, that's a great point. So basically, a scandal has two main ingredients. One is misconduct and, or transgression, and, and the other is publicity. But actually, the one that really matters is the second one, publicity, because, you know, all you need are accusations of misconduct. Of course, when these accusations happen, you, you don't know whether they are uh, real or, or not. I mean, we, we were mentioning Weinstein, but consider what happened to Kevin Spacey. Uh, he was accused a few months later after Weinstein in the wake of the, of the Me Too movement. Uh, I believe he consistently denied any, any wrongdoing. And five years down the road, I mean, he's, he's, he went through a number of litigations. And I don't think he has been uh, yet convicted of, of, of anything, right? That doesn't mean that he's innocent. I, I don't know that, but that's the point, right? We, we don't know mm. when there is a scandal, there are accusation, accusations, there is alleged wrongdoing, and then you have investigations. And these investigations can actually last for a very, very long time. Uh, years, five years is, is actually not uncommon. And in the end, even after the investigation, you, know, you don't always know. But that's that's already too late. I mean, Kevin Spacey, his career is basically done. He, he was fired from the House of Cards. And, and, you know, even though he might be innocent, the scandal actually kind of ruined his, his, his professional career. It's interesting that the the, the two mm. examples you've given so far have been to do with alleged, and I want to emphasise alleged, yeah, um, sure. sexual misconduct. Um, so as you said, Kevin Spacey in particular has not been convicted or found guilty. But presumably scandals don't just relate to sexual misconduct. They they can no, also be to no. financial and so on. Are there other examples that you could highlight that the people might be familiar with? Yeah, sure. Um, well, maybe some of the most prominent recent ones include uh, Dieselgate, uh, which involved Volkswagen in 2015. Another German firm, Wirecard, in 2020, I believe. I mean, we had earlier cases like Enron in 2001, which was very consequential and led to the Sarbanes-Oxley regulation. Uh, the scandal du jour maybe is uh, FTX you know, the cryptocurrency uh, company. But actually, these are just the most kind of well-known cases. And if you look closely, you find, you know, tons of scandals all the time, almost everywhere. There was a Scandia scandal in in, uh, in Sweden. Uh, uh, you know, in China, from time to time, you see an outburst of scandals. I remember one relating to powder milk, I think. In uh, France, we had the OPR scandal. I know if it cross border, it was it's a retirement home community, and where there was a book published showing that uh, or alleging that some people were mistreated. So you know you have these kind of scandals uh, all, all the times, and and scandals affect not only big, large public corporations; they might affect any type of organization. Think about FIFA, 
yeah. uh, the Football Association, think about uh, the Catholic Church that we study, uh, religious organizations. Uh, you might think about universities, like uh, there was a football coach scandal in the U.S. at um, Penn State. So, okay, government, of course, you know, political parties, uh, you pick your choice. <laughs> so many scandals. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a very ancient phenomenon, and it's, it's widespread. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, thinking about all of those different examples, at some point, there is a transgression of of, of a social norm or, or some sort of moral code. Uh-huh. Is that fair? And and if so, what, what role does that particular type of transgression play in, in a scandal developing? Well, here we get into the kind of mechanic of how scandals are developed. So it, it, as mentioned before, it has all to do with publicity and publicity actually occurs when the public perceive that uh, there is a transgression of some important norm in, in society. And, and this is important because we, we tend to think about scandal as you know people suddenly misbehaving, right? So they deviate from the norm uh, and then the scandal happens. So that might be true in some cases, but you can also think about cases where some actors would behave consistently over time, but the norm changes, right? So what used to be accepted at some point in time, I know, let's say, uh, flirting with your with your main manager, flirting with your female secretary, maybe in the 1950s, maybe in the Mad Men era, this was something that was okay-ish. Well, this, at some point, does not become so okay, but still it's tolerated, right? It's, uh, it's frowned upon, but still tolerated. It's kind of, it gets into what I call the gray zone. And at some point, it becomes uh, not possible anymore. It's not, not accept- accepted anymore. So you can imagine, you know, you have these two things, behaviors and norms, and both change, right? So it might be uh, actors changing behaviors, or it may be the norm changing as well. Another example, maybe if, if, if you want to use a corporate uh, scandal I mentioned earlier, if you think about Dieselgate, you know, it used to be that, you know, polluting the atmosphere was well, it was it's never been great, right? Not be, never been like uh, something desirable, but... It was okay, I think, in the 70s or 80s to kind of reject a bit of particles into the air. But, you know, as environmental concerns grew, people become more and more aware of these things. So it's probably not coincidental that Dieselgate, you know, happened in 2015 when people started to be very uh, aware of those things and, 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 and very concerned about their effects on, on public health and, and safety. I guess the other example that comes to mind as you're talking there about that difference between norms changing and behaviors changing or in each case perhaps remaining consistent mm. but the other changing is thinking back to, to Oscar Wilde and oh, yeah. um, imprisoned for, for homosexuality which these days in, in in many most I'm not sure countries is completely legal and completely um, accepted however at that time, it simply was not the, the moral norm was simply not accepting of of that type of of, of existence or um, or behavior. Yeah, and it's an interesting example that has been documented in the literature. Uh, I was mentioning Ariadat's work. Actually, it, it was tolerated in Victorian England, and believe it or not, I mean, and everybody knew that Oscar Wilde was was gay. It was it was not something that was hidden. Uh, he, he was even wearing the I think the green carnation the sign of, of, of homosexuals at, at the time. So, but what the scandal did is that it, it actually made it public, so nobody could ignore it anymore. And this is when you know bad things started to, to, to happen. And I think it's a great example because it also shows that you know we, we tend to think that some, somehow morality moves in, in one direction towards the, the greater good. 
uh, in that particular case, the the, uh, the Oscar was scandal, I think, moved the needle in what we would consider the bad direction, being that you know, it used to be homosexuality used to be somehow tolerated, even, even if not accepted and even illegal. And after the Oscar Wilde scandal, it became um, much more difficult for homosexuals in, in England. And, and does that also at least go some of the way to explaining why publicity is, is so important to scandals, that as long as something is either hidden or not talked about, then we can either not know it exists and so it, it's not scandalous or pretend it doesn't exist but once it hits publicity then we have to do something about it is that is that a fair understanding yeah exactly that's that's uh, that's you know, theory that you know once it become open when it become public you can't ignore it anymore and and that forces you to take a position right so you uh, somehow you need to, to, you can't ignore it anymore. So you have to say you're either, you know, for or against it. And, and, and then you had, you know, actors who used to be quite tolerant and then become, you know, zealous denunciators of, of practice or behavior because it's public. And, and, and there's a risk is that if you don't actually take a position against it, you might be tainted by the scandal itself. So that might affect you. Uh, so to avoid that, you want to keep, you know, create some distance, uh, and that can be achieved through uh, this form of deadless uh, denunciations, for instance. This is what, you know, if you look at what happened with the Weinstein case, it uh, was a lot of that going on, right? So it was a worst kept secret in Hollywood. A lot of people knew, and maybe not everyone, but uh, a lot of people knew that, you know, this guy uh, was involved in, in, in misbehavior. And suddenly this become public after a New York Times article, and nobody can, can, can ignore it anymore. Uh, and you see, you know, close collaborators or the producers who suddenly become very, uh, say, you know, very critical of, of, of Weinstein and, and uh, turn suddenly against him as a way to protect themselves. And I guess in some cases it may also have been as a way of perhaps hiding their own activities and hoping that they weren't discovered. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I don't want to fall into conspiracy. No, no, theory, no. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, no. I'm just thinking of of, of other uh, other film producers who who subsequently also um, got pulled into the. the oh yeah, the, sure, the, the sure, situation. sure. But you know, we we discussed the Kevin Spacey yeah. case before that. So I mean, you always have to be suspicious of you know what is really going on and don't make a quick accusations because you you don't know actually you don't know who is no. guilty of anything at all. So. Uh, but but somehow public opinion decides, or the media decides, and and, and when you get convicted by uh, the, the the kind of public court, it's very hard to actually uh, prove that you're not uh, guilty. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you talk about in in a recent article um, looking at, at, at scandals is mm. uh, the one that I quoted from in the introduction is the difference between the scandal as an event, so something happening, and, and of course, mm -hmm. as you said, uh, something has to happen or be alleged to have happened, and and scandal as moral interaction. Could, could you possibly tease out that distinction for us? Sure. Uh, I think there are two alternative ways to think about scandals, not necessarily incompatible, by the way. So I'm, as mentioned earlier, I mean, I mean, kind of the naive view of scandal is one with, you know, it's, a, it's an event, there's a beginning, accusations are made, and there's an, an end when, you know, we move to something else. And and this idea of scandal as moral interactions came from my interest in, in trying to dig a little bit deeper and think about, you know, why scandals happen so frequently. Uh, you know, we have all these unrelated cases, it seems they seem quite unique, quite idiosyncratic. 
Um, but you know, why, why do they appear so frequently? Why do they follow similar patterns? Is there anything that connects all those uh, seemingly um, unique and disconnected cases? And the metaphor I, I'm building upon in this uh, paper that you are kind enough to mention is one I borrowed from um, Irving Goffman, the sociologist, uh, and it's a theatrical one. Uh, so you can think about a scandal as you know this um, the theater stage on which uh, accused are are, are brought uh, by accusers, right? So let's say you know a firm is accused by journalists, you know, like Wirecard is accused by. Uh, the journalist from the Financial Times, and, and they engage in what I call, I would call, a, some form of strategic framing battle. Uh, so each, each is, is pushing each side of the story. The journalist frames the behavior of the firm as some form of misbehavior, uh, wrongdoing. The firm pushes its own version of the events and often de denies uh, wrongdoing. Um, and this is very public. It happens in front uh, of everybody's eyes. Uh, it's it's on TV social media, in the press. And there's also you know, probably something, you know, a lot of things that happen backstage, like, uh, you know, uh, PR firms, uh, public affairs, specialists, uh, crisis management consultants probably you know, doing, the, doing their things. Um, but there's one other component. And again, to go back to the, the theatrical metaphor, there is the audience. You know, there are people like you and me who actually follow what is going on. And, and to some extent, the, the show only goes on until uh, the public uh, you know, loses interest, right? So um, if a journalist publishes a piece, and even if it's a convincing one, and, and nobody's actually interested, and you know people don't buy newspapers, they don't click on, on these little ads in the, on the internet, uh, chances that you know this will soon die, uh, and you, you won't hear about it uh, anytime soon. But you know when the interest of the public is uh, is caught, because there is a feeling that there's a perception that there is a true transgression here. You know, there will be some kind of dynamics or some kind of interaction in the public. Uh, it will become a, a topic uh, for discussion not only in the media, uh, but also uh, at the dinner table, uh, at the office weather cooler. Uh, you know, what do you think about, you know, uh, Dieselgate? What do you think about Volkswagen? Uh, what do you think about Wirecard? Do you think that they made it? Are they guilty? And, and, and you have what we can call moralizing. So discourse about morality, what is wrong, what is right. And, and this happened at the societal level. Mm. So you have, you know, interaction on stage, interaction in the audience. And in some cases, you have what Emile Durkheim refers to as collective effervescence. So some, you know, very short moments of intense emotional reactions. And this is actually what moves the needles in terms of, of morality. You know, when you have these strong emotions, people start to uh, reconsider uh, what is right and what is wrong. And this is when you end up actually after the scandal with different moral norms or different what I call moral code that applies to individuals and organizations. So, you know, in some it's, um, you know, these are, we can think about scandal as this form of interactions about what is right and what is wrong, so moral interactions involving the accusers, the accused uh, and the general public. So that's that's the idea of moral interaction, and what is interesting is that you know it yields very visible visi visible events. All right, uh, this is uh, so that's why I say these are not incompatible uh, uh, views of, of the scandal. So I think the event is the way it manifests uh, to the outside world uh, in a very very visible uh, visible way. And does that also, when you bring it into contact, the scandal that is with that sort of the, the moral norms. Does that also explain how and why in one national or organizational context, 
something is is a major scandal, whereas mm-hmm. in another country or another organizational context, people might go, oh, that's okay, and just shrug their shoulders and you know, and not even bother with it. Is, is it that distinction which causes that to happen? Yes, definitely. I mean, to the extent that no more, moral norms depend on where you are and when you are, uh, you know, behaving, I think it's the case. I mean, uh, in the paper you, you mentioned, I, I talk a little bit about the Bacchanalia scandal, which happened in Rome, two centuries uh, BC. So it was, you know, this bunch of people from outside, from Greece, importing this very weird cult of, you know, drinking and dancing and having sex uh, uh, behind closed doors. And, and this was really uh, taken as a, as a transgression at the time. And these people, you know, some of them ended up being uh, convicted and, and sentenced to death, right? So if you think about Rome today, 2023, I guess, you know, drinking uh, <laughs> and dancing would probably not get you into trouble yet. Now, some places in the world today where doing exactly that might be considered a transgression. So, you know, these norms are really place and time specific. Yeah. And, and, and I'm thinking here, <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's because you're, you're, you're French and about the, you know, the, uh, the, the reputation that various French presidents have had for having, having a mistress and it was just kind of accepted, whereas in other countries, that just would not be tolerated. And this, this idea of, 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 of purity it's and not, chastity of leaders. Exactly, it's not only uh, accepted; it's accepted. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you comment on it. But actually, just just on on that point, you know, we we can think about lots of different, I guess, implications of of scandals. So you've mentioned Dieselgate and mm. Volkswagen, and people lost their careers, and Harvey Weinstein is in jail, and you know, and, yeah. and and obviously the film industry has, you know, quite rightly changed for the better as as a consequence. But why is it then, do you think, that in some cases, and I'm thinking here of, say, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, not only was he able to continue as president, but now is actually remembered as as being a, a relatively good president in, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. despite a very open, um, eventually, uh, sexual scandal. I don't know, maybe it has to do with what we discussed before, meaning that the transgression of the time is not seen as such a transgression now. I don't know. I, I have no idea, although you might think otherwise if you think about the Me Too scandal. So I don't know. I, have, I mean, is it, these, are, these are very you know intriguing cases, and we, we don't know actually much about scandals, so that's why also it's an interesting topic. I guess I would have to, you know, somebody would have to study this exact case to, to tell you more, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I know that, you know, it can be, scandals can be highly consequential. Yeah. I mean, if you think about firms, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the Weinstein company, uh, Enron, um, Wirecard. These companies are not around anymore, right? They went burst after after the scandal. But in other cases, think about Dieselgate, Volkswagen. Of course, it was severely hit in 2015, lost 43% of its market value. The CEO was fired. The reputation of the firm was severely tarnished. But still, the company is around. I'm not sure why. Mm. I'm not sure why. And um, the only thing I, I can maybe note, we can note, is that. The name of the scandal, it's not it's not called the Volkswagen scandal, it's called Dieselgate. I'm not sure how that happened. I know I can suspect that people at Volkswagen were not dissatisfied with that. But it really actually brought the attention to diesel as a technology. And that had you know ripple effect on, on the industry itself. Yeah. If you think about what happened to to diesel, uh, you know, it, you know, it kind of climbed the market share of diesel cars increased from the nineteen seventies to twenty fifteen and the dieselgate uh, scandal happened. It reached like 
56% I think in Europe, and now it's down to 16.5%, something like that. So it, you know, it really, it really redirected the uh, technological trajectory of, of, the, of the car industry. You know, you have you know major cities that are banning um, diesel engines. So it, it definitely had a major effect on the industry. And, and this, of course, has a lot of consequences for the strategy of all firms in the car industry, which might be quite dramatic, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I guess as, as we, we perhaps start to, to draw things together, based on, on, on your research and, and the, the research that you've done into scandals over time, is there a template or, or a best practice approach that you would suggest that leaders or organizations should take when responding to, to scandals if they emerge? Mm-hmm. Is it about just being honest and putting your hands up and say, we acknowledge this and yes, it happened? Or is it about managing in some other way? To be honest, we don't have much uh, research on that. There's the quite ancient now uh, theory paper that deals with that and suggests that you know firms may need to follow like a four-step process, which involves you know investigating what happened, providing an explanation for wrongdoing, accepting and serving an equitable punishment, and finally you know making consistent internal and external changes, like changing the strategy, changing the, the culture. And I guess somehow this is what Volkswagen did, right? They, they say, okay, we, we admit that we, we were wrong. Uh, we fire our CEO. Uh, we adopt a new strategy towards electric vehicles. So we are making big changes and it's not the same company anymore, right? We are a different company. I guess this is, you know, the only advice I can give to, to, to companies that, that are caught in scandal. But maybe the, the, the better advice is to kind of stay away from scandals in the first place. <laughs> Because this is I mean, super, super consequential. Um, and this this means making sure that, you know, your entire organization is, is not engaging in any type of practice or behavior uh, that might be labeled as misconduct. And although that might seem quite, you know, obvious and, and maybe easy to do, it's maybe not that easy. Because, you know, some practices may be what I call the gray zone, meaning that, you know, there are practices that are yeah, not really accepted, but somehow tolerated. Uh, in some parts of your organizations. So you want to be extra careful about those, those and, and maybe extra virtuous uh, because it can, maybe it will cost you in the short term, but uh, in the long run, that may actually uh, save you a, a lot of costs. Um, and the other, one, one other issue that cases of misconduct might not always be easy to detect, especially in large organizations, right? So we, we have this recent research paper where we look at you know, why scandal gets publicized. And, and we find that organizations which are highly embedded in their community, meaning that they are powerful agents in their community and people depend on them. And when these communities also are very homogenous, there is a high reluctance of people to speak up against the company. So if you have you know, a large multinational corporation with many divisions, and some divisions might actually operate in this type of, of, of context where you know, whatever happens, people won't speak against the, the organization. Uh, you know, think about what happened to Wirecard so it was a tech company, one of the few tech unicorns in Germany. The Financial Times began publishing its House of Wirecard series in 2015. For five years, they kind of attacked Wirecard, showing very weird things happening. And actually, the entire German business community, or maybe not the entire, but you know, she's a high percentage from the outside, but many in Germany tried to defend Wirecard because it was a you know, prominent uh, player. Was considered to be, you know, the future of uh, the German finance industry. It replaced, uh, I believe, Dutch, Deutsche Bank, I think, in the in tax forty. I hope I'm not saying city here, but it, somehow the, you know, people were reluctant to to speak against Wirecard. 
Uh, and finally, if I may just one more thing, there's something about culture as well. We talked about national culture, but organizational culture as well may play a role in letting corruption or, or misconduct happen. If you take Volkswagen, uh, at the time of Dieselgate, uh, the company was uh, headed by uh, Martin Wittenkorn, which was known for being kind of a very tough uh, CEO. Uh, it was you know, putting a lot of pressure on teams, not accepting any, any failure. And these are kind, the kind of environment that actually push people to cut corners in some instances. So you have to be very careful as a leader of an organization to, to actually you know, draw a red line and say, okay, this is not possible. Uh, under any circumstance, even if you're not meeting your objectives. And, uh, and I think it's a discourse which is very easy to, to, to forget. So you have to reiterate that message to make sure that it's heard and it cascades, cascades down uh, the, the, the organization. I think it's, it's not only a moral imperative, because of course you can frame it that way, but it's also a business imperative because as we've seen, these cases can be extremely uh, detrimental for the organization and it, all its stakeholders. The, the thing that strikes me as you were talking there is the importance on the one hand of, of the psychological safety and, and the ability to tolerate a degree of failure within an organization that sometimes things just don't work out, but also um, at an organizational level, allowing space for whistleblowers to, to, to come through to, to highlight when things aren't working the way they should be and to, to give that space. Exactly. Exactly. And whistleblowers may be outside the organization. They don't need to be in, right? It can be, you know, uh, you know in the community, around, uh, you know, suppliers, relatives of people who work at the organization. So that's why the, the embeddedness of the organization is within a community matters a lot. Um, that's what we find, actually. If, if someone wanted to find out a bit more about your research, do, do you have a website or, or anywhere where they can go? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I do have a re- uh, website. Uh, I think it's www.julienjourdan, with an E, E-N, J-O-U-R-D-A-N.com. And you will find you know, my CV and um, the papers I've published on these topics. Okay, that's fantastic. And I will, of course, uh, put a link in, mm. the, uh, in the show notes. Thank you very much. Professor Julien Jourdan of HEC Paris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Laurie. Nice talking to you.